If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you, so you can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hello, I am Randy Andrews, and today I've got Eric Woods from Cinematic Sound Radio with me as we discuss the movie Star Trek III The Search for Spock. We'll discuss the cast, the background, the technical aspects on the film, and of course, talk about our favorite moments of the score by James Horner. It's all today on Soundtrack Alley. Andrews and I have Eric Woods with me. Eric, it's great to have you on the show with me again. It is great to be back. We're going to talk about Star Trek 3, The Search for Spock. Eric, what are your initial thoughts on the movie? Wow, uh, like when I first saw it, my initial thoughts or just what I think of it overall? Sure. Mm. Um I can't remember the first time I saw it, honestly. Yeah, so I can't remember when I first saw it. I know I was a kid. I probably saw I probably saw it maybe on TV, but I didn't see it in in its complete form. So, um I just remember seeing great special effects and and the uh, you know the the star base and and some of the the shots of the Enterprise, but I don't not necessarily sure if I've seen the whole thing um on TV that way, but I think the first time I saw it was when the original 6 movies we released on a, a VHS box set, and I'm not sure if you saw it, but I think on the spine um, there was an image of the Enterprise or a partial image of the Enterprise, and if you put all six of the movies together, it would then show a complete picture of the Enterprise. And so that box set of movies, yeah, so th- th- that's I think the first time I saw Star Trek Three in its complete form, and uh, I really liked it. I remember really liking it as a kid. And, of course, I'd played the music on my show uh, for a while. But, I mean, like I said, I didn't get into this film until I was probably in my mid-20s. And so there were things about it that I do remember seeing. And I I really enjoyed it. I remember really enjoying the first half. And then just it's sort of kind of falling off a bit near the second half. And so I watched the film again last night. And I had the same feeling. I really enjoy the first half of this movie. I like that it's just like an instant continuation of, of Wrath of Khan. And and I love, I think, up to the point that once we get past the stealing the Enterprise sequence, which is just absolutely brilliant, um, 
it's not as it's not as good. It's not terrible, but there's certain things about it that just kind of like let's get on with the story. And then it kind of ends in a really weird way. And it, it's I'm not going to say it's anticlimactic because it is like you're wondering about Spock and whether he's going to be the Spock that we remembered. I mean, it's kind of neat to see all of them together again after Spock's tragic death in the in the second movie. But it just kind of feels like um uh, just a little bit of a letdown. Um, and, and not as emotional as the second one, but it's not a bad movie. I mean, I like it. I'll go back to it any time of the day. There were some things that were really, really good about the movie. And then there were some things that were really, really bad about the movie. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm. For one thing that really gets me is Christopher Lloyd. Hmm. Now, do you think that he pulls off being a Klingon very well? Uh, wow, that's so that's so tough because I mean, there's so many different ways that Klingons have been addressed throughout the Star Trek series. I think that you know Christopher Lloyd is just basically hamming it up and chewing up the scenery every time he's on. I honestly think he's threatening. Um, I, I think he's. Um, I think he's a really good actor. I I, I like him in the role. Um, there's a, f- I, I, I don't I don't hate him. I mean I'm not sure what the consensus is is on on his portrayal. It never really bothered me. So and I enjoyed watching him again in uh, last night. Um, so yeah, I I I'm I'm kind of like neutral on this one. I, I, I didn't hate it and it's not great, but it's he's a solid bad guy, I think. Oh yeah. You know, with Christopher Lloyd, he had said in an interview that this role being in Star Trek 3 was one of his favorite roles that he had ever gotten to play. And that's the thing about Christopher Lloyd is that he really knew how to command a scene. And one of the funny things in my notes was that sometimes he didn't know what to do with a communicator. (laughs) So he'd be yelling into the air thinking that that was the way he was supposed to communicate. (laughs) That's interesting. Yeah, they had to take several takes of Christopher Lloyd doing the scene where he would talk into the communicator because he would be yelling into the sky and... It just struck me as really funny, and it was just hilarious. Yeah, he he plays um he plays he, he does play a good bad guy. I mean, if you look back at, at Who Framed Roger Rabbit, he is just superb in that one. But that again, this is a little more cartoony, a little more over the top. What I think is so great about Christopher Lloyd, and you can even see this in Back to the Future, um, where he plays Doc Brown. Just uh, watch his eyes. He does a lot with his eyes. He does a lot with his face, and you can and you can really, you know, get a lot out of his performance and the way that he thinks, just the way that he's moving his eyes and his eyebrows and just his facial um, uh, movements. And I think that's what makes uh, Christopher Lloyd such a, such a great actor. Yeah, definitely. Uh, And, you know, in the beginning uh, where the opening credits are and you have William Shatner's name and then you have D Forrest Kelly's, but then there's this long pause where, Leonard Nimoy's name is supposed to be, and I thought that was really cool. You know what? I did not, and I watched that last night, So, and I love the credits. I mean, I love the credits, of course. I mean, listening to James Horner's music is just fantastic, but I didn't notice 
the the credit. Although I did notice Nimoy's credit in the end credits, where it says you know Spock played by, and then there's a big break, and then you see the four or five actors that played Spock throughout the uh, throughout the show, and yeah, it makes sense not to have them in the opening titles. Um, it would probably ruin the surprise. And so, but I didn't notice the break, so I'll have to go back and watch that. I, that's interesting. That's an interesting bit of trivia that I had no idea um, that they they did that. Yeah, when I went back and rewatched it, I was like, oh, that's really interesting. And it was interesting also that Leonard Nimoy, his first initial thoughts for uh, casting Krug was Henry James Olmos. Hmm. Yeah, he, yeah. Yeah, he would have been good. He would have been really good. Yeah, it would have been really interesting to see him in that role. But then you get the executive producer, and he really wanted Christopher Lloyd in the role. But to me, I think Je- Henry James almost would have been a really interesting pick for that role. Yeah, you might not have gotten as an animated um, performance out of almost as you did uh, with Christopher Lloyd. And I think that's what Christopher Lloyd does so well. He's He's a little bit more animated. Uh, and as it goes back to my point about, you know, facial expressions. So, um, but it would be, even now, if he played a Klingon, I think he would be, he would be great. Um, yeah, he would be great. Yeah. Wouldn't he? Yeah. And it's really interesting to look back on these uh, scenes, these backgrounds on the scenes of, you know, how we have Christopher Lloyd, how he could command a scene, but then also how Chrissy Alley she didn't come back for Star Trek three. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But I think it had something to do with the contract that she was in. And when they were negotiating Chrissy Alley's contract for Star Trek two, uh, Paramount didn't offer really any options or clauses regarding any possible sequels. And even according to Leonard Nimoy, this left Chrissy Alley open to negotiate a new contract but then with the excessive salary demands, it led her to being replaced by Robin Curtis. Yeah, I would like to have seen how she would have tackled the role. I think um, I think with uh, Robin Curtis, I like her. I honestly do. And it doesn't and it really didn't bother me. Um, uh, but I think that Kirstie Alley really played that role well in, in, in part two. And I think that, again, it depends on it. It's so it's so hard to to compare the two. What I find about Robin Curtis is that she had a little bit more of an intense commanding performance of the role, especially in again, going back to the face, just the way that she looks. She is a dead serious Vulcan and um, she played it a little bit differently. Um, So, again, I, I think it would have been great to have. Uh, Kirstie Alley there, but I think that they actually did a great job of recasting her. And and I'm glad that instead of just getting rid of her, she actually had stuff to do um, in this movie. I mean, it could easily have just had her, you know, had a cameo sort of like she does in the, in the fourth movie. She's just basically ignored in the fourth film. I think Robin Curtis uh, and Savick's character, I think has a brief cameo at the beginning on Vulcan. I think she stays back behind or whatever. Um, but, um, but I thought that she really played the role well. 
So, um, and I, and I made sure to pay attention to her performance last night when I saw it and, uh, I was really pleased with it. Um, I think she's, I think she's really good. Yeah. Robin Curtis, she did a sufficient job being Savick and I think she pulled it off rather well, but I would have really liked to see Christy Alley still in that role. I found it kind of cool that Grace Lee Whitney, who played Janice Rand, which was Kirk's yeoman in season one of Star Trek, returned as a transporter chief in Star Trek The Motion Picture, and then also makes a cameo appearance during the Enterprise's docking sequence. And she's a red-haired officer in the space dock lounge, and she's shaking her head in disapproval as she sees the ship's damage. Isn't that interesting? That's right. Yeah, I you know, I, I didn't know who she was, and I and I thought I recognized her, and I'm like, well, what's her role? And then I can't remember whether there was, um, you know, a conversation with her between her and Kirk, or who she was, or whether I saw her before. So I had, I had no idea uh, who that was, but she looked like she was important. And then you know, you never see her again. Yeah, exactly, and. You know, it's really neat to look back on some of these actors and actresses and say, oh, wow, I didn't know they were in this. And then uh, it was really interesting that, like, the USS Grissom was named after astronaut Gus Grissom, who was killed when the Apollo 1 spacecraft was destroyed in, ni- in January 27th, 1967. And it's really interesting, you know, when you look back on some of the actors and how they may have reacted to other things, like even outside just the film itself, and how maybe they saw uh, how the audience would have reacted to their roles on screen. And two of the instances that I'm thinking of is uh, George Takei and Nichelle Nichols. And with George Takei, it was the scene where he was expressing reservations regarding uh, him with the scene with the security guard and calling Sulu tiny. And, well, Takei liked the scene overall. He thought that it didn't really make much sense. And even when Harb Bennett explained it, due to more of a large size of the security guard. And when Takei first saw the film with an audience, he came to realize and recognize that it was a real crowd pleaser. And so it changed his entire outlook and created a more positive reaction. And then the same thing happened with Nichelle Nichols, how her role, she had a really small role in the film, and yet she had a blast doing the scene that she was in and she didn't really quite understand you know how much that scene meant but when she saw it with an audience it made more sense and she actually really enjoyed the experience now one other thing that really stands out to me is the scene of the space dock and did you recognize that space dock from anything no no It was in Star Trek The Next Generation because it made several appearances in Star Trek The Next Generation. And it's It's the same model. It was the same model. And they used other parts uh, from it being parts of the space dock as the Excelsior. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I and it was usually as a wrecked ship or something. Yeah. I mean, the space docks all look very similar. Um 
you know, yeah, next generation for sure. I just didn't know whether there was anything special about, I mean, whether it was the exact same model that they used every time they showed uh, space dock in, in next generation. I love the space docks. I think they look, I think those are great models for sure. Um, I just, the, the scope and the size of it, um, it's a really cool, I mean, I, again, like that, you know, going back to my first reaction to seeing Star Trek three, that was kind of one of the first shots I ever saw. And I'm like, wow, that's pretty cool. Look at the space dock outside of, you know, just uh, orbiting earth and, and how just huge it is and how great it looks. It's an awesome model. So that's, that's one thing that I took away from it. Just kind of like, um, catching it for a few minutes here and there on television. So that really stuck with me. Yeah, me too. Um, it was almost like it had a personality all its own. It's just a really unique design, you know? It was almost like its own character. Yeah, it's it. you, you, you don't see anything. Like, you know, like when you see that, that's from Star Trek. Just a great, yeah, great design. And, 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 and yeah, I, I think it's... I think it's a great, great model for sure. Oh, yeah. And one of the things that stood out to me was that in the film, the villains were supposed to be Romulans instead of Klingons. And with upper management wanting Klingons to be the more known enemy, by the time the decision was made, the Romulan ships were already built, but they didn't want to put into any expense of replacing it. And so even since the original Star Trek series had already established the Klingons and the Romulans having shared technologies and ships in the past for exactly the same real-world cost-cutting reasons, the ideas of Klingons using a Romulan-style vessel was not a problem. And then it was director Leonard Nimoy who conceived the distinctive design of the Klingons' bird of prey. At a pre-production meeting with Industrial Light on Magic, Nimoy posed his arms and hands to demonstrate the vessel's wings as they would ultimately appear in the film. Now, on the DVD documentary Space Docks and Birds of Prey, it revealed that the physique of a bodybuilder in a crab pose, emphasizing the muscles, also uh, the basis of the ship's aggressive stance. And so finally, the script at that time, when it was received by ILM, established that the Bird of Prey was definitely a Romulan vessel commandeered by Krug. With that backstory in mind, the feather-like pattern of the ship's underside was a direct tribute to the original Bird of Prey as it appeared in Balance of Terror. And though the final version of Star Trek III and other Star Trek films refer to the ship as purely a Klingon fleet, the Romulan plumage detail was never lost. Now we're, I can't remember. See, I don't know whether we're bird of praise shown in Star Trek, the motion picture. Like when we saw the Klingons get destroyed by V'ger, were they different ships or were they the same ship? They were different ships like boxy. And they were like, um, Straight across on top, you know, straight across all the way on top. And then they had this sort of boxy look. Oh, I see them. Yeah, they have that, that saucer in the front. Right, 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 right. They look more like, um, oh, what's the, what would be the word? I don't know. Yeah, they don't look as menacing. Um, mm -mm. Yeah. But in Star Trek 3, we get the real change of them looking that that way yeah okay now yeah i've seen a picture of them right now 
So that was what, yeah, that's when the first design. Yeah, and it's a really, it's a really cool ship. Um, and I like that we do get to spend quite a bit of time looking at it, uh, especially when it's doing its its bank. And um, I guess this one in there destroying. What were they destroying? The first ship. Um, and it does that kind of like bank around. Um, it goes towards the camera into attack position, and it's just like this great shot of the. Uh, of the model. So I didn't know that was the first time you saw that model though in the, in the Star Trek series. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. Because in Star Trek two, we get another Federation ship. That's the villain ship and not a Klingon ship. It's the first time we really see a bird of prey in action and it's clear and right there and it's overt and, I, I just, I really like it. Yeah, yeah, that's one thing I noticed. Yeah, it's Billy. Yeah, and they later, you know, they stuck with that same base model. I mean, they used it in Star Trek Six, and then we saw it again in, like, Star Trek The Next Generation, uh, Deep Space Nine. But it's that same base model of having the, the ship with, like, that Oberth uh, look to it, and it just... It stood out and it's been used. Yeah, it's it's not my favorite design, but I, I you know I do like the the, the design of I like, I like the Enterprise design, of course. But yeah, that big fat belly on it—it just looked a little. Hmm, that's a that's a pretty big ship. Um, so yeah. So one of the things that was kind of interesting and weird, but on June twenty third, nineteen eighty four, Ronald Reagan viewed the film in Camp David, but it failed to impress him. And he wrote in his diary, after dinner, we ran Star Trek 3. It wasn't too good. But nevertheless, he still watched Star Trek 4. Uh, he even visited the set of Star Trek The Next Generation. And even during filming of The Next Generation episode, Redemption. And I thought that was just really neat. It's like, oh, Ronald Reagan was a Star Trek fan. And then some of the uh, memorabilia that they had for Star Trek, such as uh, the collectible glasses. Do you remember those? No, I mean, like, again, I wasn't, a, I wasn't, a, I wasn't a Trekkie, and I didn't really follow Star Trek, so I didn't get into it until until Next Generation. So, um, and I mean, I'm not like a full fledged Trekkie. I like Star Trek, but I'm not like I'm not hardcore about it. I never collected toys. So, oh yeah, yeah. Uh, but I was just finding it really interesting that ha they had these uh, memorabilia of glasses, and then uh, they had they even had a read along book, you know, like a record. Yes, yes, and I remember that. I remember that. I collected those books. I still have a, I have a bunch of Star Wars ones that are literally just behind me. Um, those things, those things I collected. Those things I listened to death. Um, I love them. I still would listen to them today. Um, just out of pure enjoyment. I love those books. I love those, those real long books. Those 24 page real long books are stunning. Um, yeah. Mm hmm. And they had like the read along books on YouTube, uh, you know, to where they could, it would flip the pages. Yes. Yeah. I think they are all on YouTube now. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I love those. That was, that's like, that takes me back to grade two and three. That's, um, that's like early, that's early eighties for me. 
Um, that was the only way I could re-experience the, the movie without again, you know, like it without, like I didn't own a lot of movies. I didn't even own star Wars for the longest time. And, or, and like, it's like I told you, I didn't own star Trek until it came out on a VHS in that box set. So the only way that can, you know, see these movies was either on television or through those books. And those books were so good. So, so good. And I mean, my kids, my kids have listened to them. Um, they're so well produced and, uh, yeah, a big nostalgic hit whenever I kind of turn, uh, you know, like, you know, the, when you hear out YouTube beep like this, you have to turn the page with the bullwhip crack for Indiana Jones. And I think for Star Trek, it might've just been chimes, but just cl- classic stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I just how the, like how they were and how they would be brought out and uh, giving us a background on the film. And then also, I really like the opening recap and how it was Harv Bennett's idea to actually have that done. And I thought it was a really good idea to like segue from Star Trek 2 to Star Trek 3. And it almost gave us this like memorial for Spock. And one thing that I really liked about Star Trek Three is the whole mystery surrounding Spock and getting Bones to Genesis. And <laughs> what gets me every time is when Kirk is meeting with that Admiral and he's like, no, you can't go to Genesis. And then Kirk leaves and goes to his crew and they're like, so, are we going? And he's like, yeah. It just gets me every time. It's just great. Well, I mean, it really, it, it, instead of just kind of producing and like, here's, you know, we were talking about this earlier, um, about even the new tracks is that these, this series of movies, you're continuing the arc of these characters and, and, and we get that they're getting old. So you see like, you know, the enterprise is coming back. They even say it's 20 years old, it's decommissioned. You don't know whether these, this crew is going to stay together. They've been on these journeys for a really long time. Scotty's going to another another ship, right? And 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 you know, like one of their friends has has died, and all this is it's it's coming, you know, to realization that you know age is catching up to these people. And you're not getting that. You're not getting that arc in this new um, Star Trek series. And we can talk about that later, and I'll, I'll digress. But it, that's what I like about you know this is really the start of of really seeing Kirk. Um, you know, going against orders and doing what he wants and, you know, the Kobayashi Maru and all that, you know, like how he defied and, or, or what was the line that they, they said when the enterprise is um, burning up in the, uh, in the atmosphere, you know, Kirk finds a way of, of finding um, life in the face of death or something to that fact. And, and, you know, and that's a theme that goes on through these movies. And I just like the fact that, you know, these, these characters continue to grow. And, and that's what's so great about Bones is that, and I think it's so great that they, they had Spock inside of Bones' head. It's just like for the amount of time that these two have clashed and how they, they really don't like each other, even though they're friends, but it's just like, there's always a a clash between those two. And I thought, what a stroke of genius of putting Spock inside, you know, McCoy. And I love the way that McCoy played it. I thought it was great. I thought he played a crazy guy, uh, perfectly. And, um, I love those scenes where he, where he starts to sound like Spock and it's confusing. Even, even Kirk and, and the rest of the crew is like, what, what just happened? Um, so, 
but yeah, the, I, again, going back to my initial point, just I, I like the way that our characters, our characters grow. And this is really the, this, this, this sort of insubordination and going against the rules, um, starts to hurt Kirk, uh, throughout this film and into, uh, film four as well until he finally redeems himself. But I just like that. I mean, I just also like the fact that this is a complete trilogy, you know, two, three, and four. I just like that. That's a complete, you know, these, these three films are connected and it's, it's so well done. I thought it was also good for say Kirk's relationship with Sarek and, uh, his trying to like get with Sarek and, uh, Sarek was trying to give him these options of how to get, uh, Spock's, uh, Contra back into Spock. Yeah. I like, I like the fact that that relationship is is explored. It also, you know, touches upon the relationship between um, Kirk and 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 Spock. And it's amazing how many times they say, you know, the needs of the the many outweigh the needs of the the fewer the one. And that's hinted upon quite often in this. And it could get to the point where it's like, yeah, we get it, but it really is impactful. And it's sort of the going on the theme of this film, because then it's said again, but in total reverse at the end, once they finally save Spock. And I do, I do like it. It's and then those are very, very, very powerful words. And again, even though it's said, I'm pretty sure it's like two or three, maybe even four times in this movie. Um, it's still just as powerful. The, the, the power of those words does not get lost, even though we hear it multiple times throughout the film. And that my whole mind meld is is powerful stuff too. So, um, but it's interesting. I mean, yeah, you can just you know, even though he's Vulcan, you can tell that he's appreciative of uh, what Kirk is going to do, and and you know, to save his boy, and and to make sure that you know he, you know, even though he's like the whole point was like you know get his get his Katra and make sure that he's laid to rest properly. And little did we know that Spock was actually going to come back, and. And, you know, and so that it's very powerful. It's very, very powerful stuff. Yeah. And it's almost part of that essence of what Star Trek really should be. No, no. And I, I, agree, I agree completely. I mean, it's Star Trek for me is is about it's not it's not necessarily special effects or, you know, action or stuff blowing up. And this is what they got to get right. I think with the next Star Trek movie, it's the characters, it's their relationships with each other and how they grow and what they become. And that for me is really the power of these, of these movies. And even in the, even in the bad ones, you know, Star Trek five isn't the greatest movie in the world, but you can tell that these guys are buddies and you don't laugh all you want at the campfire scene, but that's what they're they're That's what they do. They're, they're, they're friends. They're very, very good friends. And you feel that. So if something happens to one of them, um, then you start feeling with these characters, but when all three, like in McCoy, Spock and, and, and Kirk are on screen together, it's, it's really powerful, powerful stuff. And that stuff is always good throughout the entire series. At least I, I think it is. Oh yeah, most definitely. And one of the things that really makes things more emphatic, uh, is the, the whole scope of how this is a movie where the crew is all together and I think the the last time that we actually see the crew all together is Star Trek Six, and they're all standing there on the bridge, and um, they're 
again, saving the galaxy, and it's very impactful, and it's just, it's wonderful. And then there's the whole thing with the Klingons in Star Trek Three, and how uh, I don't think they really fully grasp uh, what Genesis is, and that it's the planet and not the device, because the device is gone. Yeah, I, I think it's just, it's they're just after the secrets of how they can make the device. Um, and and yeah, it's yeah, it's it's really it's. I mean, I, I don't know if that's a plot hole or not, but it just. Um, I know that's what they were after. Um, but I don't know how. Well, I don't know. It yeah, it's um, it's tough to tough to kind of explain that and how they were like. How were they going to get it? Like David's the only one that knows about it. And and then they go off and kill him. And so, uh, I mean, unless Kirk has some sort of knowledge of it, but I think Savick is now the only other one that knows that. I forgot what the compound was that they used that was outlawed by the Federation, right? So she's the only other one that would know that it's protomatter that that kind of you know put this into. Um, I made it complete, I guess, for the lack of a better word. Um, but Dave was the last one. I mean, unless um, you know, where's um. Where's David's mother? Yeah, I'm not really sure, but one of the main focuses on this film is that David confided in her and uh, told her about the proto-matter and said, we probably shouldn't have used it, and uh, and then realized that um, the planet is actually breaking up because of the result of that. Um, but then it was like, yeah, so once David's gone, it's like, okay, what the hell's the point of this? Although, I mean, again, the, the Klingons don't know that he's the only one that knows how to do this, but it's just like, I don't know what they were hoping to get out of it, whether the Enterprise had data or someone, you know, cause like they were blowing up ships left, right and center, the Klingons were. So I don't know whether Enterprise actually had the, the data on Genesis and that's how they were going to get it. I, I can't recall now. So, um, I'm sure someone out there will correct us, but, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And we look at those and we look at the <laughs> it's it's like the concepts are wow, you know. I mean, you've got the Star Trek philosophy and the way things are brought out. And what did you think of the whole uh ceremony scene? I mean, one of the main people in that scene was uh uh Jane, Dame Judith Anderson. I mean, she was 87 when she appeared as the High Priestess, and she had come out of retirement uh, after being away from motion pictures for 14 years. And she was encouraged to take the part by her nephew. And the film was also her final on-screen feature film appearance, although she did have an acting role uh, two years after this film, but it didn't actually appear on the screen. Now, uh... Was she a part of Star Trek before? I don't. I don't know. I mean, I saw her. I saw her special credit during the the opening the credits of the movie. I'm like, I don't know who this dame is. Um. So, and that's that's like, who is she? I mean, they, that seems very important. It's a very important. Um. You know, I guess status to have. So, I would have to go back into her filmography and and see what she did. Although, I mean. She was in such stuff as like Rebecca and the Ten Commandments and and Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, so I just don't I don't know what her connection 
with Star Trek is, and now that I'm looking at it, I don't see her as playing on the Star Trek television series. Um, so yeah, it was, you know, it's like, it's like Steven Spielberg using, uh, Audrey Hepburn in always it's, you know, I, I think that maybe Leonard Nimoy just, you know, was infatuated with, um, Judith Anderson and, and, and maybe wanted to put her in, in one of his movies, just like, you know, Spielberg got to cast, uh, Audrey Hepburn in what eventually would be her, her last movie in always. So, um, you know, a chance to work with great actors, um, you know, if you get a chance, I guess, I guess you go ahead and do it. Um, but she, um, I was thinking, geez, man, was she in motion picture? Um, but then I, you know, I'm looking at it right now. And so she wasn't, so I just, I don't know why, but you know, she was powerful. She was commanding. She was, um, she did a really good job in her, in her small role. So, um, I mean, she was really well known and, she had, you know, appeared in this and it's like, wow, she was just really well known. Yeah, absolutely. So, and she had that presence on screen and I mean, she just really commanded the scene. Yeah. Another, uh, unique little thing with, um, the movie is with Scotty and his trip inside the Excelsior. And then he goes into the turbo lift and he says, up your shaft. Well, that's actually Leonard Nimoy saying that line. Really? Yeah. Leonard Nimoy actually did the voice. And in the end credits, it's listed as Frank Force. It's funny. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, yeah. It was just a really fun fact. And it was one of Harv Bennett's really favorite lines in the film. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I forgot that was in that, but it just, you know, next, you know, turns Scotty into a real smart ass and I, and I like that and that goes on uh throughout the next couple of movies, I think. So, a very lighthearted and very funny moment and I and I always forget that it's in this movie. Um but he's so good. Yeah, that's a great that's a great moment for sure. On oh, another really neat tidbit about the movie is that to keep the film a secret, they uh wouldn't use Spock in the script, but they would use Nauclave, uh, which when you spell it backward, of course, you get Vulcan. But I thought it was just a really neat little tidbit of how they kept the film secret from, say, the media. Uh, that's amazing how, you know, what you have to go through to keep secrets in, in movies these days. So, And one thing that really gets me about the film is how they kept the secrecy. And, you know, not to get too far off topic, but when we look at a current Star Wars movie, like we hear basically nothing about the movie um, until it's almost completely out in theaters. And, you know, when looking at, say, the example of Empire Strikes Back, um, you know, there were only three people, uh, George Lucas, Irvin Kershner, and Mark Hamill, that actually knew the reveal of Darth Vader to be Luke's father. And I think it was the same case with Star Trek Three. Not very many people knew that Spock was going to come back. But I really liked that fact, and I think it's just a really cool thing to talk about. Well, at least it gave Nimoy a chance to basically 
concentrate on directing for most of that movie. Um, you know, he's in it right at the end and that's about it. Um, so, and I mean, he did a really good job. I thought he was a really good director. I mean, and of course, I mean, you think about Star Trek four and I mean, once Star Trek four came out, that was what the most profitable Star Trek movie, um, to come out at the time. And, and I thought Nimoy did a really good job with the movies that, that he did direct. Um, I kind of wish he continued. And I know that, you know, Shatner had to have his day in the, in the spotlight with number five, but, um, you know, I thought Nimoy did, uh, I mean, he, you know, honestly looking at, looking at three and looking at the, the way it's set up, the way it's edited, the way it's shot, I think he did a really, really good job. Yeah. And he was the first actor of Star Trek to actually direct. And I mean, he went on to direct other films of Star Trek, like he did Star Trek four and, um, you know, he directed several things regarding Star Trek, but then, you know, you look at other actors, they went through their careers and directed, uh, different things of Star Trek. Like, uh, of course we talked about William Shatner and, uh, how he directed Star Trek five. But, uh, then even when we look at the next generation, we have Jonathan Frakes who directed first contact and then insurrection, but he also directed like 29 episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation, which is pretty cool. And then um, with several other actors of Star Trek that they directed different episodes, you know, like LeVar Burton or Robert Picardo or uh, Rosario, uh, I can't think of Dawson. She was from the Voyager uh, and... So, you know, there's several actors that actually did that, and that was pretty cool. And also the fact that Leonard Nimoy was the first to start directing among cast. Oh, and here's a fun little fact. Did you know that the self-destruct code for the Enterprise had never changed throughout the course of even all the movies, um, even up to current times, the code chain stayed the same and it had not changed since uh the first episode the the episode of star trek where it's uh let that be your last battlefield so i thought that was just kind of quirky and fun that is that is cool oh and did you hear about the star trek 3 video game no no um it came out on the atari 2600 and this was right before like the video game crash in 1983 and it's too bad it couldn't have just like held on for two more years because I mean then we got uh Nintendo but yeah it started off on Atari and you know it just was one of those video games that just didn't last because we didn't you know <laughs> it was just so badly received and everything yeah no i never played i mean i played i played atari as a kid i don't remember star trek at all i'll have to look that up i'll have to check out like the video game nerd and see if he does a a review on it or something like that yeah and it also makes me wonder if anyone ever did a review for the video game buckaroo bonsai i don't know i don't know i don't know there's a game for that either because that was a video game too well why don't we start talking about the score of Star Trek 3. I mean, since this is a podcast regarding soundtracks. Um, Eric, what are your initial thoughts 
on this wonderful score by James Horner? Uh, um, I think it's um, I think it's magnificent. I I do like the fact that you know Horner's services were retained, even though if Nimoy, uh, Nimoy had his way, um, Leonard Rosamond would have written the score because uh, he was really good friends with him. And eventually he did get his way with Star Trek four, which I, I thought was, which was unfortunate uh, because I thought that if, you know, Horner could complete the trilogy, that would have been fantastic. But since this one, I mean, God, I'm going to say that it's, it's, it's a direct continuation of two into three, but you know, three into four is exactly the same thing, but I guess the tone changes. So I guess it's all right. But, um, but I mean, like you said, this movie basically picks up right where the second one you know, left us off and goes right into those end credits. And it just feels natural that, you know, Horner is revisiting all of his classic themes and that sound is there. It's, it's just a wonderful extension of what he composed in, in number two. And, and I really do like that, but I just find that this one is a little bit more, um, mellow. Um, even though there are some fantastic, action sequences but um i do find that this one is a little bit more you know subdued and, and mellow a little bit more um emotional although it's a bigger orchestra by i think 10 players i'm pretty sure there's only like 90 players on the first one and i think he got about 100 105 on on this one which included um a whole bunch of different solo instrumentations and weird percussive elements for the klingons which I, I thought was kind of a, a nice homage and carryover from what Jerry Goldsmith created in, in the motion picture. So that kind of tribal music sticks with the Klingons, and I think that type of sound stays with the Klingons all the way throughout every single uh, film and television series, except for, I think, Discovery now. I mean, I don't know what Discovery is doing music-wise, but I don't think the Klingons sound like, it sounds like Klingon music, but anyway, that's for another topic. But um, I think there is um, some absolutely spectacular moments in this score. I mean, if we get into a little more d detail, uh, there's one cue that I think is arguably one of the greatest cues ever written for the history of motion pictures. And it's, uh, it's, it's, it's stunning, but yeah, I, I think that it, it's a beautiful, fl I mean, what I do like, I love the expanded edition that was released uh, through film score monthly, or I think it was retrograde records. Um, and, um, it really fleshes out the score and, and there's some wonderful moments, um, especially some of the Spock music that we don't hear on the, the, the original release, um, that really kind of helps with that. Um, it helps you, you kind of feel this score a little bit more. And of course the, the, there's a, it's a great remastering job as well. The score sounds a lot more alive and fuller, um, on the, on the expanded edition. So, um, but I, I really do like it. I mean, it, it took it. I, it was always a favorite of mine, and I always figured that two was the best. And I think two, well, it's the second best, but I think it's, it's Horner's best Star Trek score. But I see that Star Trek two and three are basically one and the same. It's like Lord of the Rings. You know, you can try to separate Fellowship of the Ring and, and Two Towers and, and Return of the King as, as three separate scores, but really, it's one gigantic score. The way that it flows from one picture to the other. And so I, I like that James Horner kept that flow through to into number three. Yeah, I really like that too. And one of the things that really reemphasizes to me is the fact that James Horner was able to come back for Star Trek three and 
it really added a continuity uh, to the two films of Star Trek II and Star Trek III. And I would agree with you. If James Horner would have been able to come back for Star Trek IV, he would have been able to blend like all three of the films together. And it just, it would create this sweeping movement of music that just kind of completed these three films and would really bring them all together. But we really get a uh, deeper rendition of the main Star Trek theme. And what I really like is that we get also a version of Alexander Courage's original Star Trek theme. And then, like you were talking about with uh, the Klingon theme, uh, it almost has this uh, ability of maybe raw barbarism, maybe? It's this barbaric, almost uh, primal uh, theme to the Klingon theme. And it's, I just, I really like it. It's super fantastic, and it's really good. And then um, I believe there's this other piece, uh, the Bird of Prey decloaks. Yeah, and I like that for the fact that uh, the piece is uh, so uh, complicated. And the music is just very like raw and exciting and, and yet also so emotional. I mean, the music that flows throughout Star Trek Three is so emotional. And so, uh, you know, you get caught up with uh, the crew and how they get back together and get back onto the Enterprise bridge. And it's just, it's so emotional and so wonderful. And I just love it. It's just fantastic. So, all right, Eric. So the first cue that we're going to discuss is the cue that's called... Klingons. Now, Eric, what do you think of this cue? I think we discussed it earlier about, you know, the way Horner introduces or uh, portrays the Klingons musically. And he pretty much sticks with the way that Jerry Goldsmith first introduced them, playing something that's more uh, barbaric, guttural, uh, tribal, um, and, and and that's what's so great about this. There's so many different um, uh, instruments. There's these strange um, horns that 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 Horner uses, um, and it has kind of like this 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 chugging, menacing rhythm about it. And uh, and I and I really like it. And that's really kind of like the the, the one real big pieces of brand new thematic material. Um, in this score. And I mean, we haven't, we don't see the Klingons for, for a, quite a while in, into this movie. And then all of a sudden, you know, boom, it hits. And it's like, oh, you know that this is the Klingons. And it, it really matches them perfectly um, in this score and in the, in the film. All right. So now we'll play that cue.
All right, so the next cue that I'd really like to focus on is uh, by far the one of the best cues that's on the score that James Horner composed, and that is Stealing the Enterprise. So Eric, why don't you tell me a little bit about Stealing the Enterprise? Um, I've... <sighs> For me, and I've said this on my own show, I think that this is the greatest piece of Star Trek music that has ever been written, although I'm pretty sure that there's people out there yelling at me right now and going, no, it's the Enterprise from Star Trek The Motion Picture. And that is fantastic. I mean, I think that Stealing Enterprise is my 1A, and the Enterprise from Star Trek The Motion Picture is my 1B. The thing about Stealing the Enterprise, it really saves the scene. And it's not a bad scene. I mean, honestly, it is a gorgeous scene. The the special effects, the the matte paintings, everything about it is fantastic. I love the fact that it is filmed in real time. Um, this is, you know, and it, it's a, it's such a, it's slow-moving spacecrafts. And what James Horner is able to do is make slow-moving spacecrafts leaving dry dock into one of the most exciting action sequences you will ever see. And what I tell people to do is watch this scene. Go go and find it on YouTube. Find the complete Stealing the Enterprise. Watch it with the volume off. Just watch it. And just watch how static it is. And I can't imagine what Leonard Nimoy was thinking when he was cutting this. Because there are so many lengthy shots. So many lengthy reaction shots. Lengthy uh, special effect shots. Like special effect shots. And again, we're going to go back to um, what we were discussing about the differences between this series of movies and the new series, whereas the new series would just be cutting a million times, a million times for an action sequence. Watch the special effect shots in this. They're just, it's one shot. Like there's the shot where the, the enterprise is leaving the dry dock doors and doing that kind of like it's reversing and then kind of speeds off. It's all one shot. You get to see the, the artistry of what is on screen the, the scope, the size, like there's one great shot where the Enterprise um, comes around the um, the space station as it's being chased. Um, and 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 the, you know, Earth is in the background. This the giant space station is kind of rotating and off on the left hand side, you see the Enterprise and how small it is. It's being dwarfed by this gigantic space station. And it's just this one static still shot. And it's like, wow, I can't believe it. I mean. If this was J.J. Abrams' Star Trek, we would have cut 7,000 times. We would have cut into the bridge, and there'd be shaking cam all over the place. And so, you know, looking at this scene, you're like, what in the world? This is the slowest-moving action scene I've ever seen. I mean, how is this going to work? I could not imagine being there and going, yeah, this this cut, perfect. Perfect. I mean, you're 40 minutes into a movie that is already kind of really melancholic and really kind of a letdown, and and all of a sudden you got this exciting scene. So who's going to save it? And now you bring in James Horner, and he like right off the bat uh, for the next nine minutes saves this scene. I'm not saying it's a bad scene, but he makes it. Horner owns this scene, and without Horner's music, this scene, this film doesn't work. So I'm just wondering, you know, I'd love, wish I, you know, whether Nimoy explained it. At any point, whether he knew that when he was cutting this, he was cutting this for the music, because I think he was, honestly. And every sync point is fantastic. I just love how exciting it is, how suspenseful it is, and all of that. 
All of that is James Horner. All right. So now we'll play that one cue of Stealing the Enterprise.
So next, I'd like to get into the one piece of the Bird of Prey decloaks. Um, this really is a fantastic piece, and I think I mentioned it before that it just it flows really well, but it's very, very complex. Eric, what do you think about this cue? Yeah, um, complexity is the the perfect word for this piece because there's so much going on, um, you know, rhythmically, even melodically, um, all the the wonderful colors that you are getting um, through the the percussive instruments. I mean, all those kind of anvil hits and and the racing strings and the way that this scene sort of mimics. Uh, the Kirk's explosive reply from Star Trek II. I think it has that sort of similar suspense, and you're kind of wondering what Kirk is thinking and and what's happening, and whether they're going to be able to to see this cloaked uh, bird of prey. And then when he finally notices it and gives the command to fire, uh, you get this triumphant fanfare um, that plays along with um, with with Kirk's theme or the Enterprise theme underneath it, in a wonderful counterpoint. Counterpoint is something that uh, uh, not too many composers are doing these days, but hearing these these two ideas kind of come together and they're not clashing, they're actually working together. It's a very heroic moment, and you're like, "Yes, I, this is amazing." But then all of a sudden, it just kind of like it does this complete 180, and all of a sudden, the 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 Klingon music um, is back because you know he fires and then basically almost destroys the Enterprise or cripples it by shooting, um, I think, at the engines. And it kind of ends on this kind of downer. But for the most part, it's really, as you said, a very complex, um, but exciting and interesting and, and very detailed uh, a piece. And and Horner was very good at this. And, you know, even though it's even though it's 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 kind of exciting, which is emotion, but that's the big thing about it. It's it's more so the, the emotions, the, the, the things that the, the characters are feeling that Horner is trying to to bring out in his music and also what the audience is feeling. So when that photon torpedo finally hits the, the bird of prey, you know, it's a big, you know, joyous moment. And that's what Horner gives us in his music. So, um, yeah, this is, I mean, when I had this soundtrack initially, I mean, it was, it was stealing the enterprise and bird of prey decloaks were two that I would just constantly play on repeat. So I love this cue as well. Yeah, so the next cue that I want to play is the Katra ritual. Now, how do you think this cue differs from, say, the the action music that James Horner has given us throughout this score? Well, it's it's interesting because now you've got James Horner. Um, I mean, he's already done it throughout the score because he's given Spock his own theme, but now he's got to give. He's got to go to Vulcan and he's got to express Vulcan and their, I guess, mysticism and religion musically. So he's got to bring in different types of instrumentations and bring different colors and a different emotion to the table here. So uh, it really is kind of like, uh, I guess, the, the black sheep cue of the, the soundtrack because it doesn't really necessarily blend with the rest of it. It really does stand on its own, but it is a scene that does stand on its own because we're at Vulcan and the battle between the Klingons and Kirk and the Enterprise is over. And now we're focusing on this aspect and it's totally, completely different. But what I think is so magical about the cue, it's just Horner did this so well. He was able to 
start with something very, very simple. And I'm talking about the way that he build upon cues. Um, he would start with something very simple and then layering. He would layer on more instruments or he would just add a little bit more volume. And he brings this piece to just this absolutely spine tingling um, conclusion, uh, this crescendo. Uh, it, it's it is it, you're, you're going to listen to this and you will definitely be feeling it. You'll be getting goosebumps. You'll have that tingle up and down your spine. And the way that he he builds it, and then you know, going back to the way that Leonard Nimoy cut this film, again, watch this scene without music. It is a lot of reaction shots. There's no dialogue. There's a lot of crossfading. And again, you're like, man, this is a five minute sequence, and there's nothing really going on, except you're going to have to have James Horner really piling it on, and making sure that you're feeling this moment. And a lot of people. I mean, some people, not a lot of people, but some people don't like being manipulated. But if there's any point in this movie that you need to really feel what's happening and have the music tell you what's happening on screen and, 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 and you know what, it's, it's not necessarily a success. You have no idea whether this has been a success. You know that the rituals happen. It, it, it's emotional for everybody involved, but the way it concludes, there isn't no real, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Satisfying. A conclusion to the cue. It is wonderful. Like I said, you get all those feelings, but you're like, you're still left in suspense because you're not a hundred percent sure what's going to happen next. And so now we'll play those two cues.
So sadly, we've come down to another end of Soundtrack Alley. And to close out our show, I mean, we've we really experienced a brilliant score here. And uh, everything that we've listened to really highlights so much. And the last cue I would like to play is the end titles. Um, Eric, how do you think this cue uh, ties everything together as from what we've already heard? Um, well, it what I think is great is that uh, Horner performs uh, Alexander Courage's Star Trek music in a different way. We get kind of the fanfare, but we also hear uh, the, the, the original television series Melody uh, played underneath it um, as kind of all of our characters um, get together and finally surround Spock and everything is okay. And that's what's really unique about this, about this piece, because um, I think once the title card that comes on screen and says, you know, the adventure continues, um, you know, it's all bright and happy again. And I think we basically get a, a reprise of, uh, of Wrath of Khan, the, the end titles from Wrath of Khan, but you know, like Star Wars or, or other Star Trek, um, series, you know, you get a nice end credit cue with the themes that, you know, you've already, uh, you kind of know and, and are familiar with. It's too bad that he couldn't have incorporated some of the the Klingon music into the the end credits, but I think it's just a nice piece and a wonderful way to to end it. And you know, like I said, I, it's too bad that Horner wasn't able to come back and finish the trilogy. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, for for a for a James Horner Star Trek score, there's no better way to end it than with these end titles. So, Eric, I'd like to thank you for being on the show with me today. Yeah, it was a pleasure. So I'd also like to thank Alexander Shebel for composing Soundtrack Alley's theme music, and you can find his work at xanderscores.com. And Eric, where can people find you? Sure, you can find me on Twitter at Sinsound Radio. You can find me on Facebook at Cinematic Sound. And of course, you can always check out Cinematic Sound Radio by going to cinematicsound.net, or you can search um, us through your favorite podcatcher, and you can find uh, the show there. And that's right. Uh, and you can find me at soundtrackalley.net. Uh, you can find me on soundtrackalley.podbean.com. I'm on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and that's about as many social media places that you can find me. I'm at RandallAndrews1 on Twitter, and until next time, happy listening.
Thank you for listening to Soundtrack Alley, the podcast. I hope you take the time to review my podcast on iTunes or even listen to it on Podbean. With your review, it helps me get noticed on iTunes. Thank you so much. Have a good day.